Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. This podcast episode is part of a collaboration between O'Reilly and Cake Solutions. Our guest is Jan Makacic, CTO of Cake Solutions. Jan is also the lead author of the forthcoming O'Reilly book, Reactive Systems Architecture, Designing and Implementing an Entire Distributed System. A preview of chapter one of that book is now available at cakesolutions.net slash ebooks. We'll talk with Jan about his experience in building reactive microservice-based systems and how those systems can help companies keep up with changing business demands. And we'll talk about some of the things he'll cover in the book. Hi, Jan. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello. Hi, Jeff. We'll get into talking about the book just a little bit later. But first, can you talk a little bit about some of the systems you're working on or building right now at Cake Solutions? Okay. Well, um, if you take... Uh, the, the book that, that we're working on, it's a summary of all the systems that we have worked on recently and that we're working on at the moment. So there is one that deals with uh, document processing. So this is people submitting images and we classify what is on the document. There is a little bit of biometrics, there's a little bit of computer vision, and there's a little bit of machine learning. And of course, by a little bit, I mean quite a lot. Um, we have, as an experiment, built uh, an exercise analysis system. This was my toy project, really, and a source of many conference talks. But it gave us, you know, insights, gave me insights, never mind us, insights into biometric processing, into privacy, and into real-time, I'm doing air quotes, so real-time machine learning and classification. So that was fantastically interesting. And then there was a system that was really, really scary. It was a secure messaging system. By that, I mean, no message could be lost under any circumstances. Now, you'd say, how hard can that possibly be? Well, the client wanted to run in AWS, which made it extremely difficult. And then there's a whole bunch of media delivery work that we're doing now. So think real-time streaming of events delivered to people's mobile phones. And uh, it is surprising how angry people get when they miss five seconds of video. I never thought that would be possible. But here we are. Well, I wanted to ask if you could talk about the architecture of a reactive microservices system. Um, would it help to, to walk us through an example, perhaps that image example you, you referenced? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's try that. So again, it is in, in the, the preview chapter that's out. And reactive means different things to, you know, different people. By that, I mean, you know, if, you, if we say the, the sales speech, yeah, this is reactive and this is all great, let's do reactive. And then you talk to you know, the engineering uh, teams who will say, no, no, actually reactive means systems that are resilient, responsive, that are elastic and that are message driven. And it turns out that it's actually the technical thing allows us to deliver architectures that allow us to nicely implement the business functionality. So I'll get to the technical details. I, I won't even attempt to do project management. So in this particular system, when the users submit a picture of, of a document, we, the client, we, the implementers, have to, first of all, never lose that picture. Right? So if the API submits the document, we have it, we must not lose it. And then there is an awful lot of processing that we do to that image uh, in order to tease out all the details that, that, that appear on the document. Now, some clients, downstream clients, want to receive you know, a summary message. They are quite happy to wait. But there are many more clients who want to receive 
messages as it happens, right? So, so they don't want to wait until there is some sort of grand answer that, that includes everything because that introduces too much of a latency. And it means that they have this big chunk of work that they want to do next. Uh, so what they prefer is you receive a message. And as soon as we have done any meaningful work, we're able to send a message. And I keep repeating the word message. We are able to deliver a message to the client system. Now, we then say, okay, well, great. So we're message driven. That's fantastic. So how about resilient? Well, that's, that's a tough one, right? And people will all, always say, okay, so you have wired, you have created these microservices and they are wired together. But what is really difficult and what is actually a really useful mental exercise is to say, well, what if the wires break? So that's, that's a, you know, a fairly low tech way of saying, what if the, dependency becomes unreliable somehow. Maybe it it just fails completely, or maybe it just happens to slow down the experience, some package loss, anything. So in order to be resilient, we really need to think about these systems and say, what is going to happen when things fail? And it's not an academic exercise, they will fail. And so this is where you know the business and the features come up. But it is reasonable to say things like, what happens when our user database is gone and we still need to log in a user? And one possible answer is to say, we'll log in anyone, any username and password, because we don't have any way to check, but we value being able to log in legitimate users more than not allowing the illegitimate users right. to, to, you know, preventing them from, from logging in. And that's just one particular decision that that I get to the details in in my chapter, and then so so we're message driven, resilient. That's kind of cool, right? We can reason about what happens when things break. Now we want to be responsive. So well, what's what's the crack with that? Well, put simply, right? We we every service in the system needs to be able to provide a timely response regardless of the conditions that it's in. There's nothing worse than sending a message to some service and then silence. Yeah. Ah, dramatic pause, right? But, but there's silence, there are timeouts. It's horrific. It's much better to know that the service rejects the request because it's overloaded or even replies back with, I'm broken. Right? So consider the HTTP 500, not a great position to be in, but it's much better to get a 500 than timeout or overcapacity and, and, and what have you. And if you do these things right, so if the system that, that you are designing is indeed resilient and it is responsive and it is message driven, that makes it a lot easier for it to be elastic. And, and there you have the holy grail, right? System that the business likes, you know, it has, it has these sharply defined components that can be plugged together, but not, none, not all of them have to be, have to be operational. And, and yet the whole thing as a whole, is working. You mentioned at the beginning of that answer, the engineering team. Mm -hmm. What kind of software engineering skills are needed to build a successful reactive system? So we, and this, this is going to be very much cake from a cake's perspective, we rely heavily on Scala. And well, I should really say the, the light band stack. So it's Scala and Akka and Play together with the usual messaging ecosystem suspects. So Kafka to give us reliable message delivery. Um, and then database is a bit of an odd word. So, so I would say that engineers need a good way 
a language and toolkit that allows them to express these asynchronous programs easily. So that leads to Scala is a great choice. Go is surprisingly good mm-hmm. choice. C++ can be difficult. And then as you go towards like the more imperative programs people write, the more blocking code they are forced to use in their programs, because the language makes it so difficult to do anything else, the worse those systems are for reactive systems. So I'm going to pick on JavaScript because that seems to be everyone's favorite. These callbacks, I mean, they're kind of cool, right? But they, they get messy. There's this stuff that sprawls out. If you look, just so I don't pick on only on JavaScript, but if you pick C++, and if you wanted to do the, the modern asynchronous IOs, so you pick Boost, ASIO, that requires deep, deep knowledge of the memory model of C++. It requires real deep knowledge and understanding of uh, memory management. And we have you know, unique pointers and shared pointers. It's not trivial. So the chances of messing it up if I may say so, in in C++ and in JavaScript, I think are greater than chances of messing it up with uh, Scala and Go. But I am biased. So we have been doing a lot of Scala programming. So of course, it's easy for me to say that, sure, Scala is is the greatest and we know the uh, best practices and we have enough of the engineering teams and support uh, to provide the necessary code reviews. You mentioned earlier about uh, achieving uh, elasticity with a, with a system. Mm-hmm. What is it about reactive architectures that enable them to adapt to a business's changing demands? Now, this this is actually a really, really, really important question. Changing demands typically means that there is a new feature that wants to be added to ideally one service. Now, if these systems are message driven then the messages define the boundary of each of the services. And so if I need to make a change to one service, I'm only changing really one very sharply defined component. Now, that allows me to you know, do, I'll say, fancy deployment scenarios. So you could think of uh, having multiple versions running side by side just as easily you could think about doing some sort of gradual AB deployment. All that is enabled by having very, very precise protocols and by being asynchronously message-driven. So that is not to say that a a synchronous message requiring complete response world is, you know, that such a thing cannot be achieved using that model, but it just makes it a lot harder. So... In, in designing these, these large systems, I think it's really important for the engineering team to have experienced the pains of distributed monoliths. So, so distributed monolith is, is, is a massive anti-pattern in microservices. And it starts by taking a monolith, which we sort of think is bad. It has this sort of ugly feel to it. And we divide the monolith and what we but we don't make the divisions completely crystal clear and completely sharp. And so what we end up having is a system that requires, first of all, all of its now distributed components to be available. And the components interact with each other in some strange way. So they might interact with each other through, say, a shared database. 
or they might interact, depend on each other through um, a common library. So if you know the, the, the architects and the engineers allow that to happen, it slows down development incredibly. Now, the kicker is that such a system may indeed be elastic, right? So it can scale. It's quite possible to have a distributed monolith that is fixed to a particular layout, fixed to a particular version, and it may scale really, really well, mm-hmm. maybe really elastic. But where it doesn't scale, I think that's, that's where the, the, the interesting difference is. Either. When we say elastic, we mean it flexes, the computational size flexes, so you can run it on five nodes, 50 nodes. To me, uh, scalability then is, is more about how the system grows, how it can you know, get more features. And to make that a success, um, we really need to have very, very, very sharply defined microservices. Can you talk more about how machine learning and big data come into what you do? Okay, so machine learning, big data. We had our first encounter with portions of machine learning uh, years ago, and it was it was hidden in computer vision code. And we quickly found that I mean, we, we did the typical beginner mistake, and we said, okay, how do we do? How do we recognize the shape of this this image? What's on the image? And we started coming up with these cookbook recipes. We said, ah, okay, so we're going to start by making the picture black and white, and then we're going to blur it slightly. Then we're going to subtract the blurred version from the original. Then we're going to do. Uh, we're going to detect edges, and then we're going to do, say, a Hoffline transform, and then we're going to take that, and, and, and then there's the result. Now, that seemed like a really good idea at the time. But what we quickly found out, of course, is that each of these steps in this, in this cookbook requires parameters. It needs to be tuned slightly. And so we ended up in, in a horrific mess of essentially unsupportable code, um, because these these settings interacted with each other in, in ways that we couldn't imagine. Now, okay, years ago, we, we, we were stupid. We didn't know any better. Now machine learning comes in. What we actually do is, referring back to the uh, image processing code, we now model the outcome in a more mathematical way, and we optimize the model. So this is what machine learning does in a way, right? We feed it data. You construct, you, I mean, you construct some model. And then you optimize the parameters of the model until you find uh, an acceptable error rate. And that's just such a saner way of looking at large-scale data processing. And I'll, I'll count into that even image processing because you know, there, are, there are quite a few pixels. So that, that was, that's our machine learning background. And we went through the pains of actually trying it out, not just for our clients, which I guess would have been easy, not just being handed libraries and being told, no, okay, this is all pre-chewed for you. Take this model that someone else has constructed. Uh, it's, it's all written in TensorFlow. You're good to go. No, no, no. We, we actually started years back. And I think for the better, we learned the hard way. So we're now comfortable with the strange unpredictability of machine learning projects. And it must be incredibly frustrating to to anyone who begins to do machine learning experiments or who wants to build, dare I say, production machine learning system. Because oftentimes, you know, the question is, is it going to work? 
And in most cases, the answer is, we'll just have to try it, and then we'll know. Now, of course, you connect to it big data. So these are sort of connected together. Um, because for a lot of machine learning, learning this, this discovery of parameters, we need to have a large number of samples to, to operate on those. And so it's, it's a chicken and egg, right? And you, you need to have an idea of a model, and then you need to have code that can train the model, and then you need to have more code that can evaluate the performance of that model. Right. But to do that, you need data. But before you have the data, you need some sort of model. Um, but of course, it's you know there are ways to bootstrap it. There are ways to trick your users into giving you the data that you then need to to improve the models. It is fascinating, and there is a chapter on that very topic in the upcoming book. Well, this is a perfect transition into a little bit more of a discussion about the book. First, I'm going to ask you to to list and pronounce the names of all your co-authors. <laughs> sure thing. So there's me. And then there is Martin Zapletal, there's Michal Janoušek, and Anirvan Chakraborty. So what led you to write the book? We looked at all the books that we could find on microservices and reactive systems. And there are fantastic books that describe the toolkits and the frameworks uh, that, that are available to implement these reactive systems. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there are brilliant books that deal with pure architecture of systems. How should these systems be assembled? But what we wanted to do is to is to share our experience in both the architecture and the most difficult bits of the implementation. So we thought, how do we go about that? Because that, that seemed like yet another book. So we decided to have a book that where each chapter describes an entire system and each of the chapters focuses on a different aspect of a reactive system. Okay. So we have one that deals with machine learning. We have one that deals with computer vision. We have one that deals with reliable message delivery. And we have one that deals with interacting with hardware. That is phenomenally exciting. There is a, a system that we worked on that uh, drives huge warehouses. And the, the conveyor belts in those warehouses go at incredible speed. I think they're doing something like 20 meters per second. And so mistakes really shouldn't happen. Um, 20 meters per second, if you have a big box traveling at, what is it, 70 kilometers an hour, that's going to hurt. Um, so anyway, we wanted to share the experience in architecting in uh, architecting these systems and in implementing the important portions of it. So what we're hoping is that our readers will be able to take one chapter if they happen to be implementing the same system to read it and get a boost from it. And if our readers are just interested in how to go about building these modern things, they should read the entire book and get a common theme that sort of uh, threads all the, all the chapters together. That sounds great. And we're really looking forward to that. Jan, can we take just a couple of minutes to talk about open source? Absolutely. Um, I should mention that uh, Jan is the editor of the Open Source Journal. Uh, so what are uh, a few of the main things that, that you hear being discussed in the open source community now? From my perspective and where, where we sit now, we have just uh, you know um, hired a new person and he's a very enthusiastic GNU supporter. And so we got into some fierce discussions of what it actually takes to do, first of all, 
well, what are the licensing models of open source and just how important it is to know. And his point was, well, I, I worked so hard on, on this system and I don't want my work to be wasted. I want my work to be shared, to continue to be shared. So that, that was actually absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. And look, we, we, meaning we take solutions, we rely on open source technologies, open source contributions, and we make our own bit. So one of our guys, Tam, he's been uh, now accepted to be a member of the Scala organization. So he had a few pull requests merged into the Scala language, which is incredibly exciting for, for him and for us. It, it was it was hard work. Yeah. There are a few other projects that, uh, I say a few, there are actually quite a few projects that we have contributed to, either me personally or the team at Cake. And so I, I genuinely like to think that, that we share our code, that we share our knowledge. And I am actually very, very comfortable with that. So it is perfectly fine to share the patterns and, you know, the architecture. This is exactly what we're doing, even with the book. Um, I don't think there's any sort of deep secret. I mean, th there are bits of code, of course, that, that are specific to, to each of our customers. And that's a different scenario. Right. But I think everyone really should be encouraged to do open source. Well, thanks, Jan. It's, it's been great talking with you. And if people want to find out more about you or about Cake Solutions, where should they go online? So they should go to cakesolutions.net. Uh, that's, our, that's our website. I'm sure people know, already know about our blogs. So cakesolutions.net slash team blogs for all the techie goodness. Uh, Jan, are you on Twitter? Yes, I'm on Twitter at honzam399. Can you spell that for us? H-O-N-Z-A-M 399. Great. We've been speaking with Jan Makachik, the CTO of Cake Solutions. The forthcoming O'Reilly book that Jan is co-authoring is Reactive Systems Architecture, and we're expecting that to be published tentatively uh, this fall. And the first chapter of that book can now be downloaded for free by going to cakesolutions.net, and we'll have that link in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. Jan, thank you very much for joining us. It was my pleasure.